Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me. We talk about faith and politics and all kinds of topics that really matter in our culture. So if you're tired of all the screamers out there taking all the oxygen out of the room and you want to join us and taking some of that space back, you'll love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I am your host, Corey Nathan, and so grateful to have a place to talk about faith and politics and big ideas in our culture with all kinds of interesting, accomplished folks of goodwill and in good faith. And I'd like to say we rely on your support to make these conversations happen. So would you consider becoming one of our patrons? Every bit counts. It's real easy. Just go to politicsandreligion.us. That's politicsandreligion.us and click on that patron button at the top. That will really help us continue to do what we're doing, such as talking to the awesome kinds of folks like we have today. Brian Kaler is the president and editor-in-chief of Word and Way, a Christian media company founded in 1896. He's associate director of ChurchNet and the host of an awesome podcast called Dangerous Dogma. Brian is also a prolific author, most recently of the books, For God's Sake, Shut Up! <laughs> I'm not kidding. That's the, I think that's a 2018 book, right? Uh, for God's Sake, Shut Up! Lessons for Christians on How to Speak Effectively and When to Remain Silent. And just before that, I think in 2016, it was Vote Your Principles. Party Must Not Trump Principles. Brian has a PhD in communication from the University of Missouri and serves the Baptist World Alliance as chair of the Communication Advisory Committee and chair of the Resolutions Committee. He's a board member for the Baptist Peace Fellowship of North America and for the St. Louis chapter of Americans United for Separation of Church and State. Brian has also taught college courses in advocacy studies, political communication, research methods, and public speaking, much of which we hope to talk about today. Brian Kaler, thanks for joining me today. How are you doing? Well, I'm doing great, Corey. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited about this. Yeah, yeah. We've been meaning to do this for, for a bit and looking for all kinds of ways to collaborate. So I'm, I'm really excited. But I, I'd love to introduce you to our guests. Um, now, you grew up going to a Southern Baptist church and politically, it sounds like as a kid, you were pretty conservative, like president of your high school's Republican club. Is, it, is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's me. Okay. All right. So, so, okay. So then at what point did you become quote unquote, a liberal nitwit? <laughs> yeah. I'm still trying to figure that one out. Honestly. I mean, you know, I, so I grew up in a Southern Baptist church and was taught in the nineties that character matters and that's a conservative value. And then over the last six years, when I've said that character matters, I'm a liberal. <laughs> and I, I mean, the, the teenage, you know, version of me still trying to figure out how did that happen? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm reminded of the joke. My grandpa was a farmer and pastor, and, and he used to tell the, the joke about the old couple that's going down the road in the pickup truck. And the wife looks over at the husband who's at the steering wheel and driving. And she says, you know, remember when we were young and we used to sit all close to each other and, and cuddle while we're going down the road? And he's holding the steering wheel and he looks over to her and says, well, I ain't moved. <laughs> and, 
and something has shifted around. I mean, uh, uh, to be fair, I my values, my beliefs, my philosophies have changed in in many ways, have evolved in some ways. But in other areas, it's remained solid. But that the idea of what's left, what's right, what's conservative, what's political has changed a lot in recent years as well. Yeah. But but you came to some epiphanies relatively early on. I mean, I, I don't know exactly when you graduated high school or when you graduated college, but I, I saw articles that you wrote as early as at least as early as 2003, where you were beginning to question some of the default post positions of your church community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that that's stuff coming right around the time I'm graduating college, the, the, the first time that I'm starting to write some articles for a broader uh, audience than just, you know, what I had done locally at college. And I'll be honest, a lot of the shift came with 9-11, which happened uh, while I was while I was a student at a Southern Baptist University. And there was just something that I reacted differently to that moment than most of it seemed campus as well as American evangelicalism and Christianity. Uh, and that began the path of being like, what's happening here? You know, maybe Jesus isn't calling us just immediately turn around and, you know, bomb everybody. Uh, I, I think when he said, love, <laughs> you love your enemy, he didn't mean kill them. And so that kind of question of what does this mean? How are we supposed to respond in this moment from taking seriously the teachings of Jesus? That that's really what began to open up this journey for me. So was it was it what you were gleaning directly from your own how you were processing scripture and how you were interacting with it as a more mature a, a young adult or were you reading other theologians philosophers that gave a new lens to how you were reading scripture that 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 brought you to some of these conclusions yeah, I mean, in some ways, there's maybe a little bit of a chicken and egg question, but I, I honestly think that a lot of the questions that I was asking came first from Scripture, and then later began to find voices that were, were helping. I mean, I, I had a I had a professor at my college who, after 9-11, after I'm asking some of these questions, I'm writing a bit about it in the campus paper, comes and gives me the, the first issue of Sojourner's Magazine that came out after 9-11. And so it was the issue that responds to this moment, and he handed it to me because he he was pretty sure that it would resonate with me. And then when I'm reading it, it's that realization, that aha moment of like, hey, I'm not alone. Like there are actually other Christians who think like this and are asking some of the difficult questions. And so honestly, a big part of it was I took my Sunday school teachers and my pastors seriously. They told me to study the scriptures. They told me to let it guide my life. And then when I started asking questions and making decisions based on doing that, you know, it's kind of like, well, we didn't quite mean that seriously. Uh, but, you know, I th- really think it was the, the the text led me to find these other Christian voices and non-Christian voices, but particularly Christian voices dealing with the text that helped me realize that there are other ways of reading the Bible and applying the Bible than just what we were taught in a very narrow, conservative, evangelical, you know, white American tradition. Yeah. So I, I want to ask you, I don't mean to sound like um, I'm, I'm cynical or questioning uh, the authenticity of your beliefs, but I just want to share a, a, a thought process that I had or questions that were raised. So when I first became a Christian, I've shared this a lot on this program. I began to find that a number of my friends at church had prioritized their political and social views over and above 
theological views, what, what we were reading in scripture. And if we read something in scripture that didn't reckon with those political stances, then there'd be all kinds of, of machinations and acrobatics to kind of work around it. And I don't know. And it just struck me as the wrong way. If you're a Christian and you defer to the authority of scripture, start with the scripture. And, and if it, as human beings, if you're not uncomfortable at certain points, you're just not, there's something wrong if you, you know, but I, and, and then um, I think uh, some, some folks recognized that I was doing this. I was grappling with a bunch of stuff and they introduced me relatively early on. It must've been around the same time that I was introduced to Jim Wallace's work and Sojourners. And it was refreshing to see a different perspective, but I have to be candid that there were certain issues where I felt like the, there was an a priori position that we decide, and I, I can't think of one off the top of my head. I'll probably be in, inaccurate if I throw one out. But there were certain positions that were more liberal or um, democratic leaning that the, the scripture, what I was reading in scripture, didn't necessarily line up. So the same fundamental mistake was being made uh, by putting political preferences or social preferences before what scripture seemed to be screaming out to us. Did you find that too? Or, or Am I, was I just doing a, an early version of um, what about ism? <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, you're right. I mean, there, there is this sense in which party ID is our new religion. And so we start from that premise and then try to, you know, push the words of scripture to fit into that mold, either by ignoring the inconvenient passages and conservatives have different inconvenient passages than liberals, uh, but we all have them. Uh, and or by making stuff up. Wait, wait. I, I have to interject here. Since, since the uh, since uh, you know Donald J. Trump went down on the uh, I don't you you tried not to say his name on your podcast, which I kind of appreciate. But when yeah, he I'm went not as to, good as Stephen Colbert, but Colbert <laughs> like made that decision. Like I don't know if it was after January sixth or is after the election, but that he was never going to say Trump's name. Yeah, uh, and then. And, and yeah, he's a lot better. I don't think he's ever slipped. But uh, but you know. I do have to say the inconvenient scripture since Donald Trump arrived is essentially the whole Bible. <laughs> yeah, right. I could literally, it amazes me. I read my, I read Bible every day. So it amazes me. Like I, and it kind of bothers me that like, we're that it just jumps off the page. Like, Holy cow. Did any of my other brothers and sisters from church re read this? <laughs> you know, like this, this is like the uh, Donald Trump is the, you couldn't have picked someone who is more the opposite of Christian virtues and almost every page of the Bible screams out with it. I mean, you know, if you had written this as a novel 10 years ago, I mean, your editor would have rejected it as, you know, unbelievable. No one's going <laughs> to buy that this thrice married casino magnet who was a play, you know, on Playboy magazine, that this is the person that <laughs> evangelicals would, would go for unlike any other candidate, not just yeah. while he's running in an office, but since then, staying loyal to him, I mean, it, it, we, we've jumped the shark in this season of, of whoever's writing the, the, the script of the life that we're in right now. <laughs> but, you know, we do this and it, and it really it, it predates him. I mean, you know, I, I grew up hearing we take some of these stories, right, that, that are inconvenient. The uh, Jesus talks about the uh, it's easier for uh, a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter into heaven. And maybe you've heard this one. But I, you know, they, well, you, you know, there was this, this short gate, 
you know, in Jerusalem, that it was called the, the, the eye of the needle. And like, it was, you know, the camel, like, no, that's made up. That's not true. Jesus no. was literally talking about the eye of a sewing needle. The whole point of his teaching is that it's impossible. Right. Wow. And that's, and that you get that from the reaction of the disciples. They're like, Whoa, wait a minute. If the rich man can't get to heaven, then how does anyone get there? Right. So he's, he's, he's hitting at the theology, but rather than, than taking this passage and being like, whoa, Jesus just said that it's impossible for a rich man to enter into heaven. And, you know, let's be honest, by the definition of, you know, the Middle East at that time, a lot of us in, quote, middle class America are very wealthy today, right? So that's an inconvenient passage. So we have to literally make stuff up to try to take away the edge. So we've been doing this for decades in the white Christian church I'm, I'm, I'm in America. I'm sure other churches do it as well, but this is the context in which we grew up in and that I grew up in that I'm more familiar with. And so you're right. We really are twisting scripture to try to match our politics. And there's, there's research that backs this up. Uh, most significantly, I think of Robert Putnam, Harvard, best known for his book, Bowling Alone, uh, David Campbell at Notre Dame. They co-wrote a book several years ago called American Grace. And, and part of the work for this book was to go through research of talking and listening to Americans over a long amount of time, you know, tens of thousands of Americans. And one of the things that they've written about that they have found in their data was that four decades ago, if your pastor said something that conflicted with your chosen political party or your chosen politics, that you were more likely to change your politics, maybe even change your party. And then today, and I say today, this research is actually pre-COVID, and I think it's probably worse now. Mm. I think COVID on so many ways has exasperated and been a catalyst for even more extreme politics in our churches and beyond, and the polarization of our politics and our churches. But they said that today, that if your pastor says something that conflicts with your chosen political party or your chosen politics, you're more likely to change your church. Or I guess if there's enough of you in the church, you're more likely to change your pastor. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Any pastors listening there, there they know that, uh, oh, unfortunately, yeah. all too well these last couple of years. And so we are seeing a significant shift has happened over the last four or five decades in the way that people are reacting. And, what, and, and this actually is worse, Corey, than it sounds. It, it, it's not that our churches, it's not that our pastors, it's not that religion is the second best influencer of our worldview after politics, after our chosen parties. It's that we only tolerate our pastors as long as they toe the party line. So, which, I mean, yeah, it's hard. Like if you got a 20 minute sermon or, you know, Southern Baptist, maybe you can go 45 minutes. I know, uh, you know, I know that 20 minutes is long for our Episcopalian friends, you know, but uh, (laughs) Southern Baptists are just barely past the introduction at 20 minutes. But, you know, if you got 20, 40 minutes sermon, how does that compete with watching cable news the rest of the week, right? You you don't really even have a fighting chance as a church, as a pastor today in combating people's political ideology and that development of the worldview. But we really do come to the scripture now with our red glasses or our blue glasses from our red churches and our blue churches. And it is a significant problem. Yeah. Yeah. We just had the privilege of speaking with Pete Wayner. And he did a couple of seminal pieces on this very thing. Uh, one, I think, was in the spring of 2019. One was more recently in the, just this last fall of 2021. And I, there was a question I wanted to ask him, and, and hopefully we'll get to talk to him again. 
And and he he for the piece in this last fall, he interviewed dozens, dozens of pastors and folks that are in um, church leadership. And this what what you're describing uh, plays out again and again and again. Some some um, folks were able to put their name to it and share their experiences. Others uh, didn't feel that they could put they they needed to speak off the record in order to be able to speak freely about it. But the one question I had him so for him, he was doing this research in the late summer and early fall. And I was wondering if he circled back with any of those folks and if any of that climate has changed, has it continued to congeal and, and become more hardened? Or is, is there any sort of breaking of this fever? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't see a breaking of the fever yet. I mean, so there was that brief moment for just a few hours after January 6th and the, the insurrection where it felt yes. like maybe the fever had broken. Yeah. Right. I mean, we had significant politicians like, you know, Senator Lindsey, Lindsey Graham, like I'm, I'm done with Trump. I'm done. Right? Yeah. 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 I mean, which lasted like two weeks. And then, you know, right back, you know, showing up at, at Malargo to, you know, get right back into the orbit and, and stay in his good graces. You know, there was that brief moment where, you know, people seem to know this, like something went wrong. We went off the rails. But then I think that there was this quick concern of like, well, wait a minute, though. You know, the base doesn't necessarily think that. Right. I mean, I, I feel for like, you know, Senator Lankford in Oklahoma, conservative, I mean, conservative Republican, yeah, super conservative, other Baptist yeah. minister. Uh, he very conservative, came part of this Tea Party wave into Congress. And he's literally speaking. I was watching, you know, C-SPAN at, at the time, C-SPAN 2 at the time, because, uh, you know, that's I just I, I do. I mean, right. So, you know, uh, I, I'm a nerd. And so I'm watching. <laughs> Lankford is <Own> literally <laughs> speaking at the time that they that they shut down debate. Right. And aide comes up and tells them the, the protesters are in the building and the senators are being escorted out to try to keep them all safe. So when they finally come back you know, several hours later in the middle of the night to resume the debate because he had the floor, Lankford's the one that gets to start speaking again. And he was speaking before they left about why he was not going to vote to certify the election results. And so he, I mean, he'd already come out publicly. He wasn't going to vote to certify. So he was, you know, he was going along with the party line that there was fraud in the election and we needed to not certify it, you know, so on and so on and so on. And he was so shaken by what happened that day that when he comes back his tone is different and his vote is different he votes to certify the election after that and as a thanks he's facing a primary opponent from a pretty extreme anti-covid pastor calling him a rhino republican in name only because he dared to have a moment of compassion and self-reflection on January 6th in the middle of the most significant attack on our capital since the war of 1812. Yeah. And so, you know, that, that there was that brief moment where it felt like the fever had broken and then it didn't. I had, I had a moment, truly a moment. Uh, I got in my car and I've shared this story, so I'll be brief about it. Uh, that that day, I got in my car at about 1130 my time, which is, uh, you know, we're in California. So about 230 in the afternoon Eastern, 
And I got the end of uh, the Wilkow majority and the beginning of Hannity when I was in my car. I just turned to Patriot Radio because I thought, like you, that this was one of those moments where the fever would break. But the very end of Wilkow's show, I heard the beginnings of the three main talking points. Uh, some people are saying this is really Antifa and Black Lives Matter. The second point was, where was your outrage when? <laughs> the where were, you know, he was talking about the protests over the summer of 2020. And then the third one, which was the most disgusting to me, it was, this is what you get kind of a talking point. What did you expect? This election was stolen, you know? And, and uh, again, I, I've shared this, but I heard, I, I was intervening, uh, a, a fellow that I was going to uh, church with was having kind of a mental break and uh, we were called to his house and uh, there was a violent exchange between him and his wife. Um, and the kids had gone by that point, thankfully, but we, we finally calmed him down and then something snapped in him and he started getting violent again. And those were the words that he used. Mm. This is, look what you made me do. This is, this is what happens, you know, as if him being violent, domestic violence was somehow the victim's, you know, like, so that's those, those talking points. Um, th it was that day, two 30 in the afternoon on the East coast, 1130 in the morning here that day, people were still literally defecating in the Capitol, you know, and, and these talking points were already emerging. So it gave me a little bit of, um, a lot of pessimism that no, this isn't one of those moments right away. Um, that some combination of a, um, a media complex, a conservative media complex, a base that now has a much uh, bigger microphone or a bigger amplifier, I should say, and a de facto, uh, not a de facto, he, he is a leader that just basically seized the Republican Party, the quote unquote conservative movement, which that's a whole other conversation. But there, there's something, there's some sort of poison or cancer that just will not relent that that it just continues to persist and gets worse and worse so I, I would like to ask you because you've done some work on this on a larger scale i'd love for you to give us a history lesson about this sort of thing um if you speak to any number of friends from church including well-read well-informed thoughtful friends many can simply never vote for or support anyone who happens to be a democrat that's that's where we're at but that wasn't always the case at what point and how did the republican party gain such a stranglehold over so many, I was going to say Christian, but really what, what more specifically white evangelicals. Yeah, I mean, so this really is something that has shifted over the last, you know, four decades. You know, I mean, so think about it this way, right? So Jimmy Carter shows up on the scene, 1976, Southern Baptist Sunday school teacher, uh, Time Magazine put a big cover and declared the year of the evangelical, mm. right? And there was all these questions about to Carter, like, Evangel born again, what does that mean? Like, you know, who are you? And yet, you had, uh, Chuck Colson's book it was coming out that same time um, about being born again, right? And so it was, this, it was kind of this new understanding of what was then a smaller religious demographic. It was not, it was just, it was starting to become outpacing the mainline church as the largest religious demographic. And so there was this sense of like, hey, there, this is a, a Democrat was the standard bearer for evangelicals in many ways. And then in response to some of his policies, we get a very significant political organizing. You know, the moral majority is launched in 79. 
Uh, also, the exact same year by some of the exact same people, there's the uh, the rightward shift in the Southern Baptist Convention is launched. And one of the two leaders, one's a pastor, but the other one's is a, a Republican political activist, right? This mm. was So this was a sense of here's the largest Protestant denomination, a.k.a. a potentially large voting bloc. Right. And so we have this political movement to take over the largest Protestant denomination at the same time we have this organizing to get churches. And honestly, it's mostly about race. Right? It's I mean, abortion comes up as a topic much later. That is now a, you know the solidifier for a lot of people. But you're right. There used to not be this sense that, oh, well, if you go to church, you must be a Republican. That is, this is very much a modern political thing that we don't see emerging. It's still in, in play at the end of the 70s and into the 80s. It's by, by the time we get into the 90s, it starts getting locked in, right? But we still have a little bit of this back and forth there throughout the late 70s, into the 80s, even to the early 90s. And it is now it's this dominant image and it's having a profound impact on the witness of the church. Right. So when when the white evangelical movement is seen merely as one political party at prayer, then anything that political party does is not only a rebuke of that party, but also of their church, right, their religious movement. And so rather than being a, a prophetic witness to both parties, rather than being uh, yeast, good, good least yeast in both parties. Right, the by by deciding to marry one party, and they're very pro, they're very upfront in their goal. I mean, Richard Land was a significant Southern Baptist leader throughout this time period. I think back in like 1988, he made the comment about how you know we want a marriage, we want to consummate this marriage. He uses that language wow. of consummating the marriage between the Republican Party and you know Christian the Christian right and the Christian churches, and so they this is what they wanted. And what we're getting now is a generation walking out the doors of the churches and not coming back. I don't think that that's unrelated. I don't think that, I mean, this is what has happened that, I mean, if you're, if you're of my generation or younger, you have grown up in this time period where the church has been highly partisan and highly aligned with one political party. And it has never, that has never in the history of the church ever worked out well for the church when it has never worked out. I mean, we've tried it. We've tried to build a holy Roman empire. We tried to build a, you know, this and that holy empire. Every time the church has tried to align itself too closely with political power, it has just become political power. Yeah. You know, what's interesting is I, I, to this day, still identify as a fiscal conservative, small business guy. Uh, social libertarian, but a lot of that is is loosely held because again, my primary authority is scripture. So a lot of times I'll be you know looking for some answers and reading chunks of of, of uh, scripture, Hebrew Bible, New Testament, and I'll arrive at a at the very least a more nuanced conclusion about a piece of legislation. Um, but. I have since I became a Christian, I've often found myself um, questioning, questioning the assumptions, the political and social, like assumed positions of of my church family. And because I've done that, it's been assumed 
that as a, as a really dear friend of mine, we finally got to talk in one-on-one about it. And she said, well, Corey, I thought you're a dyed in the wool Democrat. Um, like, I don't know what that means. Uh, and not that there's anything wrong with that, but like, how, how did you derive that conclusion? And it's simply because I wasn't towing the company line. And then later on this, so this was early 2000s. I noticed, I think it was sometime around 2008 that it was even, it, it got even more divisive in a way. Uh, something happened around that time where it, it wasn't that it, if you asked certain questions, it was that if you didn't express sufficient enmity, if you didn't express in, in, sufficient antipathy for Democrats or folks that were outside of the, I guess if for lack of a better, because it's not really conservative. Uh, it's it's really like kind of the Fox News subculture that, you know, if you didn't express antipathy for anybody outside of that, then, well, you must be one of them, you know, and I noticed it as far back as as 2008. What, what so are, are there certain markers? Because, again, you've done this uh, in in the as an academic uh, you sort of tracked with some of these things. So w- what was I tracking with along? I became a Christian in like 2000, started noticing things certainly, you know, it's around the, uh, after 9-11, build up to the Iraq war, but then again, 2008 and obviously 2016. So what, what was happening within the church? What was happening in our country that was giving a guy like me those sorts of impressions? Yeah. Well, I hope everyone will take to heart the title of this podcast don't kill me, but <laughs> 2008, what happens is a black man gets nominated to lead a major party mm. and ultimately gets elected to the White House. I mean, if we want to talk about the, the original sin that is disrupting and still destroying the witness of so many of our churches, it's racism. I alluded to a moment ago that, that you know, the religious right doesn't start organizing about abortion. That's the myth. Randall Balmer has, has particularly, Professor Dartmouth, uh, he's got a, a new book that came out last year about this um, bad religion. And uh, he has, has documented this from primary sources. The, the issue that gets the religious right to start activating, start, you know, doing advocacy and, and getting engaged in partisan politics is the issue of segregation, particularly when Bob Jones University was going to lose his tax exempt status because it was a segregationist school. That's the issue. And so this racism is not only baked into, unfortunately, a lot of our church denominations, right? Well, Southern Baptist Convention, for instance, was literally founded to support and propagate slavery and then the religious right organizing in the late 70s is literally about trying to protect the right to discriminate against blacks. And I really think that I, I, I really like the way you described it. There's this tonal shift that happens in 2008, right? This shift from, well, it's not enough now to just toe the party line and to say the right philosophies. We need you to be angry enough at the other side. We need you to hate them. I mean, and so when you look at the rhetoric about Obama, and I, and I don't mean from his candidate, because John McCain's actually still kind of old school Republican, as we've seen, you know, since that time period as well. So McCain was, you know, there was a time where a woman famously 
referred to Obama as a Muslim, right? And McCain An Arab. stops. I think she said, yeah, an Arab. Arab. Yeah. Right. And 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 but it was the implication was it was a Muslim, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And 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 McCain's like, whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, like, like, I don't like Obama's policies. I want to be president, not him. Like all of these things that, you know, traditional old school politics, but he's like, this isn't true. And, you know, he, so he was trying to stop what was happening in politics, the shift towards the politics of personal destruction, the politics of, but I mean, you look at the polling at the time and the number of, of Americans who falsely thought that Obama was a Muslim and the implication, the problem wasn't just that this was a falsehood. The problem was that and therefore, he's not qualified to be president. Right. right. And so if you've got a president who was engaged in church, had been married to one woman, and he's not a Christian, but then is replaced by a man who has multiple children from multiple wives and has never had a record of church attendance and says really profane things, including claiming that he never had to ask God for forgiveness. And that man is a Christian. <laughs> he says, I am the chosen one. Right? I mean, <laughs> the, the, you're not worshiping Jesus anymore. Right? I mean, that's the God of white supremacy. There's, there's no universe. Yeah, I don't care what you think about their politics. I don't care what you think about their policy. There's no universe in which Donald Trump is a Christian and Barack Obama is not. You can say Donald Trump had better economic policies. You can say he was a better president, but you cannot in good faith from any biblical understanding say that Donald Trump is a Christian and Barack Obama is not. If that is the statement, then that's racism. So how do you answer? And I, I find this to be trite and superficial, but I'm sure you've heard this objection before. Well, you don't know what's in his heart. <laughs> How do you answer that? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, Jesus said that what comes out, it tells you what was in, right? right? I mean, yes. the, it, we have, there's so many passages from Jesus. Oh, man. Uh, a good tree uh, bears good fruit. Right. Uh, good fruit, bad fruit does not come from a good tree. You know, what for, for the, the James, you know, talks about this with the tongue and lighting the world on fire. I mean, it's, yeah, I don't know what's in his heart. But I know what comes out of his mouth. And Jesus said that what comes out of his mouth tells us what's in his heart. Yeah. I mean, it's that simple. Again, like it's in the Bible. And so, you know, I do know what's in his heart because I've heard what comes out of his mouth. Yeah. Words, actions, character. Again, character matters. And that's why I'm such a flaming liberal. <laughs> that's right. Actually, OK, so I do want to take a step back because I'd love to talk about your uh, education, your career trajectory. It seems you knew fairly early on that you had an interest in communications and specifically our rhetoric as a culture on, on religious and political matters. When did you first start realizing this, this fascination to decide to pursue it as, as uh, a focus for your, for your studies? Yeah. I mean, that's a great question. You know, in maybe in hindsight, if you look at my resume or something, it, it makes it look like I had everything mapped out, but it didn't feel that way <laughs> at the time. I mean, I went to college to, to be, be a pastor. Uh, so my first major was pastoral ministry. And then I was on the speech and debate team, had been in high school, was doing that in college. And so I was spending a lot of time over there in that department. So I picked up a second major just because might as well, I'm doing the work anyways. And so I was a second major in communication and the four years were very formative. And by the time it's over, uh, I, I, one decided I wasn't going to go to seminary. And I mean, I went, I took a few, we can get to this in a moment. We'll talk about seminary in a moment, but I decided that when I graduated, I wasn't going to go 
get a seminary degree and become a pastor. I was going to go to grad school in communication. And I even walked with the communication department as opposed to the Christian ministry uh, major. And so, you know, there was this shift over that four years of where I decided I best fit in. And what I wanted to do when I got to the University of Missouri for my graduate schools, my master's and my PhD was to study this intersection of religion and politics, particularly religious rhetoric in the political sphere, uh, how politicians are using religious rhetoric, how religious leaders are engaging in the public sphere. But it just, it, it fired up something in my brain of, of interest, both ability and interest. And uh, I also just realized that this was this is where I was talented was research and writing and not in you know pastoral ministry. I mean, I, I, I think I could preach pretty good. I was just, you know, speech and debate. I, you know, I, I can do that part, but there, there's a calling to be pastor that I realized wasn't mine. And, and I did spend a year taking some classes at a seminary, my uh, senior year at college, I was part-time. I had stayed around my fourth year just to compete on the, on the team and so, you know, but unlike, unlike, you know, not the football team, but the speech and debate team. And so we wanted to uh, go win nationals and we did. So that was worth sticking around for. Uh, but I was also wanting to move forward a little bit more with my academics. So I was taking a few classes uh, at a seminary and my plan was to transfer those credits to another seminary. And in the middle of that experience, they required us to write an English proficiency exam. Uh, apparently, there had been some complaints about the quality of academic papers. And so, I, I mean, by this point, I had won some awards for my writing. I was confident that I was more than proficient in English. And since I was commuting two days a week, five hours to take classes, I had a full schedule. And they scheduled this for my one hour that I took off for lunch. So I tried to get out of it. They wouldn't let me. So I was irritated. And I had a two and a half hour drive to think about all the things I was going to write. Uh, that that day. And one of the topics they chose was the role of women in SBC ministry, which spoiler alert, there's not really, you know, you can't be pastors. Right. And so I decided they had said on the note, you know, you're only going to be judged on your English proficiency, not your theology. And I was naive enough to believe it. So I decided to write just for just to get a kick uh, of why women should be allowed to be pastors in Southern Baptist churches. And uh, they failed me, deemed me not <laughs> proficient in English, put me on academic probation until I took a remedial English course, uh, They, which, by the way, also wasn't going to be offered the next semester. Convenient. Can't take any classes until you take this course. And by the way, we're not going to offer the course. They said they would let me know when the course was ready. And I I mean, I haven't heard yet. It's been, I think, two, two decades now. I haven't heard yet. But uh, anyways, I, I took some PhD English classes at, at the University of Mizzou. So you know, I, there, there was this whole experience of recognizing that this wasn't where I wanted to be spending, investing my time, and it wasn't where my gifting best was. So in, in some ways, I kind of backed into it. It wasn't what I went to college to do, but I found my place along the way. Yeah, that reminds me of um, one of my favorite theologians, a fellow who came on our program, and I'm kind of friendly with a guy named Samir Yadav. Uh, he teaches not uh, a little north of, of where I am in Southern California. And um, he, I forget if it was master's, uh, his first master's or his PhD, but he did all the coursework at uh, <laughs> Johnny Max University, master's university. <laughs> You're a big Johnny Mac fan, aren't you? Oh, John yeah, MacArthur. <laughs> so he did all the coursework, but they, they um, in order to get your degree, they make you sign, uh, I believe, X, Y, and Z thing. And because of the work that he did to get there, there were certain certain nuances that that he said eh, 
I, I can't really sign that uh, because th- I don't believe that. And it's not that I don't believe it. It's just not true. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> after all doing all that work, they wouldn't give him his uh, I was going to say damn degree, but actually his damn degree, you know, like, but I, I'm this brings up a, a, a larger issue uh, is being a rhetoric fan. I, so when you I think when you were in college, that was about the time that I was I was reading voraciously the spring and summer of and into the fall of 2000. I had this voracious reading habit and uh, some of what I was reading at that. This was right before I became a Christian. Some of what I was reading were uh, apologists like uh, Lee Strobel and Josh McDowell. Uh, some of McDowell's work I, I found um, unpersuasive, kind of pissed me off, frankly, as a non-Christian. But it ultimately opened the door. I, it opened the door. There was some information there that I, I thought, ooh, I didn't think a case could even be made for the life, death, and resurrection of, of Jesus. So at, in, at the very least, it was compelling on that level. I do look back at it, though, as that style of rhetoric, that style of engaging isn't, gosh, I just wonder if it does more harm than good. You know, the literally like litigating a case, it seems to force us into intellectually dishonest arguments. But I I'm curious, are you a fan of of guys like Strobel, McDowell and that style of rhetoric or, or what do you think of all that? I mean, it was in high school. And then I put away childish things. I mean, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think I get and I, I think maybe for some people that is helpful and works in the progress. I would say the problem is if that's as as far as we go with faith. Right. Because there comes a point where despite their best intentions and best interests, like we can't prove that Jesus is the Messiah. Like you, you just can't prove that from an argument. Like even if we could get to the point that we could prove the historical record, which is not there uh, to the level that they would like us to believe, that we could prove that you know Jesus was here and he was here and he said these things and he was killed on a cross, right? Even if you could prove beyond a shadow of a doubt all of that, there's always going to be that next step. There comes a point where the premise of that level of apologetics, uh, which diverges from kind of ancient classic apologetics, uh, is is a failed project of the modern Western mind. It's going to fail because that's not the point of the Bible. It's not the point of the story, and ultimately, it it misunderstands what faith is. Right? I mean, I think I think you know you'd hear from McDowell some of those that, well, we just the opposite of faith is doubt, right? So we're going to give you the certainty that you know, that you know, that you know, that you know, right? You know, we, we heard the pastor start doing that, that litany there. But actually, doubt's not the opposite of faith. Certainty is the opposite of faith. Well, that's interesting. Faith inherently has doubt in it. That's why you have to have faith. I mean, we'll just put it this way. You know, I can see the people are listening to us. I can see that you're wearing a blue shirt. Now, those who are listening now have to decide whether they trust me to say that Corey is wearing a blue shirt. Now, if you go post a video of this interaction, they can prove that. They can see that. But they don't have faith anymore. They know it. They've seen it with their own eyes. But doubt 
is part of faith. They have to they have to believe that even though I can't quite see it, even though I don't know 100% for sure, I believe that Corey is wearing a blue shirt because Brian says so. I'm going to give you another example. So I'm, I'm mostly deaf. I have, I have hearing aids. And so, you know, without them, I really can't hear anything. And so, I mean, the nice thing is I can sleep through anything. And I take them <laughs> out at night. I mean, you know, it was convenient when our son was a baby, right? You know, I, I didn't hear him crying, you know? Um, <laughs> all, the, all the other dads in my Sunday school class were jealous of that excuse that, you know. Um, so when, when now, like if my wife pokes me and wakes me up because there's been a noise in the house, I did not hear it. I do not have certainty that there was a noise in the house, right? There's always that inherent doubt. Was she having a vivid dream, right? Was it just an innocent noise and it's just the house settling because it's old, right? You know, but if I decide to get up or not, that's me proving my faith that I, that she did hear something, even though I didn't hear it. But I, if I knew I heard it, I don't, I don't, I don't have, I don't have faith anymore, right? I, I have certainty. I know it. Interesting. Interesting stuff. Yeah. I was glad you weren't going to throw some doubt in there on what color shirt you were wearing. You know, I saw, you well, know. I, <laughs> I saw you look down like you're, I was like me, right? I'm like, wait, what color shirt am I wearing today? So if my wife was on this, uh, in this conversation, she'd say something, well, it's actually aqua or, you know, like she'd be, you know. Yeah. So. Yeah. We English speakers, we, we don't see as many shit. This is a, I mean, blue is an interesting example, right? Uh, Russia's in the news a lot right now. One of the things the Russian language does better than us is they actually have more words for blue that they use oh, regularly. Okay. Like we basically are like, other than maybe your wife or, you know, interior designers and others, you know, we're all like, it's dark blue, it's light blue, it's, you know, you know, <laughs> sky blue. Yeah, right. Yeah. We don't, we do, everything's blue. Uh, and so there's actually been some research that shows that we literally do not notice differences in blues. We don't see as many tones of blues as Russian speakers see because they, they naturally have all of these different words for blue and they can actually see different blues that we can't see. And so language really does shape our world. It shapes, it literally changes the way that we see the world. That's interesting. Yeah, so it does bring, huh, I didn't think of this, but I guess when you find the perfect word or phrase, it does bring a sort of order out of chaos it's a, it's a creative act. And, you know, and I know there's, there's beauty in that because I, I've thought a lot about how we are in the image of our creator. And that's, that's one of those ways. Uh, so, okay. I do need to ask you <laughs> an interesting moment in your career came on the day that you earned tenure as a professor at James Madison, right? Can you tell us about that and why you decided to make that major vocational shift that you did when you did? Yeah, so about two hours after I received the letter from the president, which is the last step, there's so many hoops that you jump through to get tenure. Uh, it has to be approved uh, by your department faculty and department head and dean and provost. And anyways, the last step is you get the letter from the president of the university that says, congratulations, you've been promoted, you have tenure. Uh, and two hours later, I quit. <laughs> school. <laughs> I've had people tell me that apparently I don't understand the definition of tenure, uh, but that, that, I mean, it was a coincidence in timing. Like I knew that I was going to get tenure. I had passed all the other steps. Like I knew it was going to happen. The, the timing that it all happened on the same day was a little bit of a coincidence, but yeah, I mean, I enjoyed teaching. It, it, it's fun. And I enjoyed the interactions with the students. 
but I enjoyed the writing more and particularly the opportunities to write more outside of the academy. So the problem with academic publishing and academic writing is that it's a largely broken model. And to advance in the academy, you have to publish in certain journals and publish certain types of books. And it's just not working as a model anymore. And there's some financial problems there. There's some reasons why it's getting worse and worse. And ultimately, you spend a lot of time researching, writing something that very few people are actually going to read. And I had been doing a lot of freelance writing by that point. And it's nice to be able to write something that people are actually reading, can actually get people to think. And so that was a big reason why I decided to step away from that was to be able to devote more time uh, to writing. Uh, and then ultimately, a couple of years later, I end up at Word and Way. And so that's what I get to do now all the time is to, to write about things that I think are important and that people need to read, not just a couple of people sitting in a you know, university you know, office somewhere, but that the many more people need to read. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, now that you mention it, take us to the present. You run Word and Way, 126-year-old organization, host Dangerous Dogma, not nearly as old of an institution. <laughs> but um, can you tell us about your current roles, the organization you run, and how everything you're doing ties together? Yeah. So we started in 1896, as you had mentioned, and we've had an interesting life and a lot of different ways of who we're reaching out to, but have been a historically Baptist publication, increasingly reaching beyond that denominationally with our readership and our listeners. And I, I came as, I'd been doing some freelance writing with Word and Way, among others. And then in December of 2016, I became the editor and president at Word and Way. And we still have a monthly magazine. We're still in print. So we're still old school in that way. And that we have been in print for this 126 years. And so that was the first part was, you know, reimagining the magazine and, and it's a very visual, you know, platform. And so I still enjoy that a lot, but we have a website, wordandway.org. And then we've been adding other digital products as we're trying to, you know, reach into this new age in which that we are in and communication and the way people consume news. We launched our first podcast, Baptist About an Adjective, in 2018, launched Dangerous Dogma, which is now the primary podcast, the weekly conversations uh, podcast last June as a way of kind of broadening out the conversation beyond just what the earlier podcast had. And then we've also have a Substack e-newsletter, A Public Witness, and this is kind of long-form essays, particularly focused on issues of faith, culture, and politics. A couple essays a week, half of them are for paid subscribers only, but the others are free. And this is a way of, of kind of really leaning into a lot of the things that you and I have been talking about, honestly, and, and thinking about what does it mean to live out our faith as Christians in this incre increasingly partisan and profane world that we find ourselves in. And so, I mean, it's just it's just a lot of fun. Every day I get up and I, I'm, I'm writing or I'm talking to interesting people and, you know, helping hopefully get people to think about things in a different way or even to learn and to hear about things that they didn't know about. Yeah. Yeah. I've read quite a bit of this, the, the, the pieces, uh, even prior to your in, involvement with, um, with Word and Way. And, and it, you, you're right. It definitely, definitely gets me to think a lot. Um, I read a little bit of For God's Sake, Shut Up, because the title is just so great. And I love that title. You yeah. know, when you, when you sign a book contract, you sign away two things with the publisher, the title and the cover design, because people do actually judge a book, a book by its cover. And that, so most of my book titles, like 
it, it got changed. That one stuck though, right? The publisher fortunately saw that and said, yes, that's, that's a good catchy title. Yeah. Well, you, you do deal with something in the, in the book. I'm going to oversimplify it way too much, but for time's sake, um, <laughs> you, you express concern in that book about when Christians say or, or do stupid things or even worse, evil things and how it damages the church's witness in the world. And as someone who grew up very observantly Jewish, I'm certainly keenly aware of some of the historical examples of that, uh, absolute atrocities. And sometimes when I've gotten into those conversations in the church, the first thing someone might say is, well, they weren't real Christians. The Crusaders, they weren't real Christians. But <laughs> um, set, setting aside that uh, sort of dismissive trope, what are some of the ways folks today who are sincere when they say they're Christians are doing and saying stupid or even evil things. Yeah, I mean, the, the easiest one might be to just go to what Jesus and John and, and many other biblical writers get to is this idea of, we even have the old Christian song, they will, they will know we are Christians by our love, mm. uh, which I don't think is how we're known very much today. Mm. Uh, you know, and that's pre-COVID, and COVID, I think, made that even worse. I mean, there's this sense of this neighbor ethic that is supposed to be guiding uh, the foundation of so much of what we do, and it's missing, right? I, I, you know, and there's been research, I mean, that shows this. You ask people, you know, what uh, what the book Unchristian came out, what, you know, decade, 15 years ago, uh, asking non-believers like you know what's the first words that come to mind when you think about christian you think about the church right and it's not good words and we're known more for our politics we're known more for what we're against than what we're for or particularly the fact that we might love our neighbors as ourselves. Uh, and i think that's such a sad indictment on the church there's a saying i, I remember grew up, growing up hearing it that said you know be careful how you act towards other people you might be the only bible they ever read yeah, believer's behavior version. Yeah, right. Which, which there's, there's a lot of truth to that, right? So, I mean, a, a lot of people are rejecting Christians more than they're rejecting Christ. Um, Gandhi put it about, you know, I, I love your Christ. The problem is your Christians are so unlike your Christ, right? But you know, I also think there's a problem with that statement. If if someone, if we're the only Bible someone ever reads, maybe we weren't a very good articulation or a very good example of that right if they if they're reading our lives and then being like oh, i don't want to i don't want to touch that i don't want any of that then you know maybe we've done something wrong i mean we hear these stories from early church of you know plagues and christians being written about by non-believers as the ones that would care for those who were sick right and these crazy christians like what is wrong with them I'm not sure there's a lot of people that are saying that after the last two years with, with COVID, right? You know, those crazy Christians are the ones that, you know, kept having mass super spreader events and kept demanding their right to show up as if COVID was somehow flying through the air and when it heard a Christian song would run away. Uh, but, you know, I mean, you know, John MacArthur is a great example of this. Yeah. I mean, not only does he violate the law, whoops, so much for caring about Romans 13 anymore, right, that he used to preach. Uh, not only does he 
he he demands special privileges and rights that secular groups don't get to have, and at the same time causes a super spreader event that they kept secret for months in their own church where he and his wife even got sick from it. And who knows how many people died because John MacArthur kept telling them, God expects you to show up, put your butt in the pew, and don't cover up your mouth. This is God's will for you. How many people died because he kept preaching that? And then at the end, he sues his local government and gets, what is it, $800,000 in tax Hundreds of funds? thousands. Yeah, yeah right? Yeah. All right. And so, I mean, we're rewarding bad faith actors here. And so the next time the local government, if you're in that community and you're wondering, well, why don't we have money to fix this pothole? It's because it went to John MacArthur while he was breaking the rules and causing a super spreader event that made the, the community sicker. Like that's... Like, that's not the way that's not the witness of good news to those around us. You brought up an interesting little tidbit in that description. And I don't know if you're prompting me to ask this question, but where our taxpayer dollars are being spent. And one that you hit upon just recently was you you think this whole government endorsed chaplain thing should be abolished. Where are you at with the whole church and state thing? I, I mean, you, yeah, I'm just I'm curious. Share share a little bit about wh- where you're at with all that. Well, I wasn't trying to trigger you in that direction, but I'm happy okay. to jump up on the soapbox. <laughs> all right, all right. So, you know, yes, I, I don't think that we should be paying someone uh, to pray before our our members of Congress as official government speech on that. So the, the U.S. Senate, the U.S. House and state legislatures across the country have official positions, government roles called, you know, House chaplain or Senate chaplain. They're elected by the members of the le- legislators uh, in, in D.C. They've always been Christian, of course, right, because that's the dominant faith, which means if you're a lawmaker of another tradition at the beginning of every single session, there's a reminder that you're not quite fully American enough. Right? Mm-hmm. The, the chaplain here is only from this faith tradition, and this is what it really means to be a member of this body. And those chaplains, I mean, you know, I study political rhetoric and, you know, the intersection of religion and politics. And so I've, I've studied their prayers in a couple of different studies. I've pulled a bunch of prayers from the chaplains, looked at the way they're talking about God, the way they're talking about current politics. And these are very sectarian prayers, which I think is, I think is great for prayer. I think prayer should be sectarian when it's in a church. Right. You know, uh, there is no such thing as an interfaith prayer. You can have interfaith prayer event, but I think each prayer itself, you're talking to the divine. If that's not, you know, sectarian, I don't know what is, but these are sectarian prayers, uh, pretending, often speaking as we, as behalf of the senators or even the country. And then not only that, these prayers are recorded as part of the official proceedings of the United States government. So if you want to go look up, I mean, I, you, most of your listeners probably won't, but hey, I watch C-SPAN. I also go and look <laughs> at the proceedings of the United States government, right? And so if you were to go look up, like, what did the U.S. Senate do yesterday? And there's a, there's a journal and it records, you know, all their, their votes and who voted how, all of this type of stuff. But uh, up there at the beginning, you're going to have word for word, Senator, uh, excuse me, uh, Senate Chaplain uh, Barry Black's prayer included as government speech as this is what the United States Senate did today. Uh, And I think this is a significant problem. It sends a witness to a message to many of our uh, nation's citizens that they are not truly, fully American enough 
because they are not Christian. Ironically, the, the last piece I had published before the January 6th insurrection on January 5th, the day before, was for roll call in D.C., and it was about why we should abolish the chaplains. Uh, and because there had just been uh, in the House, they had just picked a new chaplain, first female chaplain, United States Congress. And I had some progressive friends that were like, yay, this is wonderful. We have a woman. We have a Presbyterian minister. Isn't this great? And I was like, well, I mean, if we really want to make some progress, how about we just abolish the whole thing? And so, you know, that's what I think would really be great, because I'm not a fan of Christian nationalism when it's storming the Capitol, carrying Christian flags and, you know, killing police officers. But I'm also not a fan of Christian nationalism on the left when we're excited about paying a, a House chaplain to pray in God's name as part of the official business of the United States House of Representatives. And so, you know, I come from that really old school Baptist perspective that church and state should be separate. Um, Baptists used to believe that before Southern Baptists became the largest Protestant denomination. I think at that point, we talked a little bit about this, right? Well, hey, it's a large voting block. If somebody's going to run this thing, why not us? Um, but it used to be that Baptists believed that church and state should be separate because it preserves the integrity and the witness of the church. That's why we've had Baptists arguing for that. Uh, the, one of the first two Baptist pastors of First Baptist Church of the world uh, was the first person to write in English uh, a treatise on why we should have religious liberty for all people. This was a revolutionary idea when Thomas Helways wrote this, because prior to that, people were like, hey, you should stop persecuting us. So you have the, the Puritans are like, hey, we're going to flee religious persecution in England and come over to the new new land. But they didn't actually believe in religious liberty because then they, they set up Massachusetts Bay Colony and start persecuting anyone who disagrees with them religiously, like Roger Williams, the first Baptist in the Americas, gets cast out. right? And so that's not religious liberty. That's just changing who's in charge of the religious persecution. So Hellways is like everybody should have freedom. Even, even Muslims and atheists, and this is 400 years ago. I mean, this is, this is radical stuff in a radical age. And so uh, he, he, writes a, he writes a personal note and sends it to the king of England, who promptly throws him in prison where he dies. Like, that's how radical this idea was, that the king of England, also then the head of the Anglican Church, Church yeah. of England, right, literally has Thomas Helways thrown in prison to die for daring to suggest that church and state should be separate. That, by the way, was King James, you know, the guy from our Bibles. Uh, right. Same year, right. the same year that he's releasing the authorized version, Hellways is writing why we should have a separation of church and state. So, yeah, this is a big deal for me. I think it's one of the most significant problems facing the American church today is that the church has gotten too comfortable with you know, state power and is, is, is so focused. And this, this gets to what we were talking about earlier in this, this program about the, the alignment with one political party. It's, this, it's part of the same goal, this goal of let's run this country. Yeah. And it's not going to end well. It always ends poorly for the church. I use this, this quote you know, often, but it's the best way of describing this. Tony Campolo as an American Baptist writer, professor, and uh, he, he put it this way, mixing church and state is like mixing manure and ice cream. 
<laughs> it doesn't mess up the manure, but it sure messes up the ice cream. <laughs> and so that's the perspective that I want Christians to have. Like this isn't good for us. It isn't healthy for our witness. It isn't healthy for the church. It isn't healthy for the ice cream when we decide to mix it with, oh, I guess I'll say it, the manure of Washington, D.C., right? <laughs> I mean, there it is. So, okay, I want to give you an opportunity to explain a, a little bit of flip-flopping, but maybe not. Maybe it was an evolution in your thinking. Maybe it was sort of convenient kind of being a team player kind of a thing. So I saw one piece that you wrote in 2012 criticizing candidates like uh, Rick Perry and Michelle Bachman for invoking all of their religious lingo, uh, language and symbols throughout their campaigns in order to play to a certain part of their base. But then in 16, you pointed out that other candidates like Jeb Bush, Marco Rubio, Chris Christie, um, they all criticized Pope Francis for speaking about politically charged issues. So was that evolving in your thinking or is there a balance there or were you being sort of, were you counting your, uh, going on two different sides of the fence um, to uh, for, for the side that you were playing on? Like just, uh, I'd love for you to respond to that. Yeah, I think I understand where, where you're getting on with this question. I think it's a good nuance to start to flush out. So my concern is that a politician would use religious rhetoric to gain votes. And this this is this is the 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 premise of my my dissertation on confessional politics that was published as a book is this idea that uh, once something works, when something works, other politicians mimic it. Right. So after Obama wins in 2008, every politician's like, we need to be on Facebook because (laughs) Obama won by reaching young people on social media. So every single candidate gets on social media now. Right. Because it worked. So the same thing happens with. Jimmy Carter, right? Jimmy Carter just shows up and talks about who he is. And in the age, there's a lot of things that are happening, but quickly you've got like, you know, the Nixon resignation, you've got Vietnam, you've got all this stuff is happening. And people are like, we need somebody we can just trust. And it's like, wow, this peanut farmer with this big smile that keeps talking about Sunday school and the Bible, like that seems like a trustworthy guy. So then at that point, everybody is saying, oh, the way you win is you talk about God. And so once that happens, we have allowed our faith to become politicized in that if if politicians have to do something to win, most of them are going to do it, especially when you're getting to that level of politician. And so if if talking about God and claiming to be a Christian is just a box you have to check, then we're going to find people checking that box without sincerity. And that's what I think explains so much of what we've seen, let's say, the last six years in our own American politics, right? But it, it, it's different than when we're talking about a religious figure speaking to political issues. And that would be the contrast that I would say is that Pope Francis isn't running for president or, you know, you know anything else. It, or it's like Martin Luther King Jr. speaking into political activism, right, speaking to political issues. I think that there's a different standard for a private citizen speaking into the public square than there is for a politician who might be exploiting religious traditions and language for electoral benefit. Um, It's the same thing. You'll you'll see some politicians, I'll give you a non-religious example. Some politicians will break the law. You know, it's like civic protest and get arrested. And they're like, you know, hey, that's because, you know, people have always done this. Look at Martin Luther King Jr., right? And to me, there's a significant difference between someone who's charged with enforcing the law, breaking it, and someone who's not supposed to enforce it. Like if, if you're in a role where your job is you have literally taken an oath uh, to uphold the law, that changes the expectation of how you act. 
And there comes a point where if you can't uphold the law, then you can't follow your oath of office and you need to step aside. And so I do think that there are certain freedoms that someone on the outside has to lean into and accept those consequences. And I think the same thing is with religious rhetoric. Yeah. Yeah. Completely fair. Um, I have so many more questions, but uh, I feel like we, we should uh, land this plane before it runs out of gas. So do you have any questions for me? Yeah, I appreciate that. I mean, now, to, to be fair, I'm going to ask all my good questions to you later when we have you on Dangerous Dogma. So, you know, <laughs> I, I don't want to I don't want to give away to those good ones here. Uh, but no, I, um, I have to admit you were you, you, you were asking about some of the church state stuff. And since we we've just been on that topic um, and thinking about those the last you know six years and the way we've seen the church and lining of politics. I've been harsher on conservatives because that's I think where we've seen the violations, you know, over the last six years. But you kind of hinted a little bit also earlier on that I would agree with you on your concern that this is done on both sides. And so I wonder if we can lean into that a little bit as well. Where is an area that you've seen on the left? I've mentioned chaplains. So, you know, that's that's an area where I think the left has been much more excited about church state violations uh, even than the right in recent years. But I wonder if there's another area that you see as a blind spot uh, for many on the left. Well, I, it's going to be hard for me to talk about because I want, I want to be an ally for certain groups and certain causes, but I am reticent to um, pretend that parts of scripture don't say what it says. Uh, the, the best example I can come up with, and I've been working through this for the better part of at least 15 years, is what the Bible, when the Bible, in particular, New Testament scripture, uh, says about um, homosexual acts. Now, I should say also, uh, I had a long talk with uh, Dr. Amy Laura Hall, a professor at Duke Divinity School, and she knows scripture. She knows the original Aramaic and Greek, and you know, she she knows scripture, and she's come to very different conclusions about when, uh, like in Paul's letters, where or. You know, Romans one, for example, I've heard arguments that, and I see it like when I read Romans one, I don't think that that part of the, the letter that he wrote was meant to say homosexuality is a sin. He was using a, a word or a term, I think, that was meant to be part of a, an illustration of what's wrong in creation. Right. So and. Um, Amy Laura, I think it was Amy Laura, it might have been our friend uh, Lisa, um, Lisa Harper, that was saying, now, wait a second, if, if let's look at that word. I don't know if it was Romans one or, or um, like the first Timothy example, but I think that word was sexual immorality or sexual uh, deviance um, that then became translated as homosexuality. Now, sexual deviance is is really like pedophilia uh, or or other types of, of sinful behavior. It wasn't homosexuality, but we're translating it as homosexuality. So I've, I've heard these arguments. I'm not sure where I fall, but I, I just feel like we need to, we can't just pretend that the parts of the Bible, that at least the translations that I, I, I don't speak the original Greek or the original Aramaic, the ancient Hebrew. So, uh, you know, I'm left to I certainly don't know the original language enough to do a translation of it or have these arguments, but at the very least, I, I feel like we need to reckon with the fact that it's there and have serious conversations about it. 
you know, before we start to say, well, I decided in advance that I'm pro this, pro that, I'm anti this, anti that. So that's that's just, again, it's hard for me to talk about because listen, you know, I have dear, dear friends that are gay. I have, you know, family members that are non-binary. I, you know, so I want to be their ally. And not only that, I want my allyship of them to be theologically consistent with, with this this authority that I've deferred to. I want to, but there there I might come across some scripture that makes that real hard for me to do. I'm hoping that it comes out the, the other way, you know, the way where I can continue to be that ally. But I'm still I'm still grappling with that's just com- being completely transparent. Yeah, no, I love that idea. You you use the word wrestling. And, you know, that's, that's the name Israel, uh, he who wrestles with God, which is such a weird name to give to a country, right? <laughs> like, so, but that's, they, they take on this name that was given to Jacob and they take this on as the name for their people that we wrestle with God. And I think that what you're highlighting in your answer uh, in your humility about it, as well as just what we've talked about in some other examples is so much of Christian life today is we refuse to wrestle. Like we refuse to grapple with these. You know, we, 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 we decided what we believe, and then we're just going to go find the proof texting evidence to match that political ideology. And instead of, of taking the time to wrestle and being like, I'm not sure yet what where this is going to come out. I, I hope it comes here, but you know what? If it follows me over here, that's where I'm going. Uh, we've lost that, that idea of wrestling with the text and wrestling with God instead of just coming to the text to, to match our politics. I, I just love the way that you, you, you mentioned that. Thanks. Yeah, the, some of my favorite projects that, that I've been a fan of uh, and, and read, um, I... N.T. Wright did this well before I became a Christian, uh, began a project as a historian, uh, a, a trained academician. How do you say the word? You know, a professor like that. That was his work. That was his vocation. History, first century Israel. But he was also this Anglican. Now he's an Anglican bishop, I think. But he entered into that research project doing the work of history, risking the possibility that some of his theological foundation would be shaken at the very least, if not completely crumbled. Uh, so he came out the other side, just having much deeper beliefs, much well, more well-founded, um, well-rooted beliefs and the- theological framework because of the history work that he did. Now, someone like Johnny Mack, like you can't like... You know, six 24 hour days. No, we're not going to question that. <laughs> so anyway, so this was uh, this was really fun. I'd love for you to share more information about you, Word and Way, uh, Dangerous Dogma and all the great work that you're doing. How can we find you online? Yeah, thanks, Corey. And thanks so much for this conversation. This has been great. You can find us at wordandway.org, spelling out the and. And there you can find links to a public witness, which is our email newsletter subscription. I encourage you to sign up and get in your inbox our best work on faith, culture, and politics. And you can find links to Dangerous Dogma there at wordandway.org as well, or wherever you're listening to this podcast, I think you can probably find it there as well. And I uh, would love to connect with some of you. And I, again, this has been a really fun conversation. I don't, yeah. know, I don't know if it's supposed to always be this fun. I hope people are enjoying it as much as you and I are. We certainly are. We haven't even started drinking yet. So, <laughs> <laughs> Hey, I'm a Baptist. Give me a break. <laughs> 
Brian, I appreciate you coming in. I appreciate the conversation. Looking forward to having another one early next week for your program. And uh, so it is wordandway.org. Um, really, really thanks, thankful to uh, Brian and Bo for setting it up. And uh, yeah, uh, looking forward to doing doing more of this kind of thing. Great. Thanks. And as always, if you dig what we're doing here, please hit that subscribe button, leave a review and comments wherever you get your podcasts and tell a friend about talk politics and religion without killing each other. We're easier to recommend than ever. It's politicsandreligion.us, politicsandreligion.us. You can even support our program, like I said earlier, through the patron app on our site. Now go talk politics and religion with gentleness and respect and have a great week. Thank you for joining us today. If you dig what we're doing here, it is super easy to follow us. You can go to our site, politicsandreligion.us. That's with the and spelled out, A-N-D. Politicsandreligion.us. And we're on all the socials, at TP and R pod. You know, TP and R pod for talking politics and religion pod. And here's a big way you can support us, by becoming one of our patrons. You can even become a producer or executive producer of our program and have a lot more say in who we bring on, the kinds of questions we explore, or just help us keep the lights on. But mostly, we really appreciate you giving us a listen. So for the whole team here at Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other, thanks for hanging out with us. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam. Hey.